Hey, it's John from CityCast. If you're in the mood to pamper yourself a little bit this week while supporting cruelty-free products, you should check out Bone Cur Home and Wellness. It's the best place in Portland to find everything from chic home decor to cannabis accessories. They've got a curated collection of vegan and cruelty-free home goods and wellness products because their name is French for kind heart, after all. You'll get a 20% discount on your first order when you sign up for emails this week at boncoeur.net. That's B-O-N-C-O-E-U-R.net. And use the code BONCOEURCITYCAST20. Today on CityCast Portland, we're talking about the return of armed Portland State University officers, a proposed defunding of promises made by the city back in 2020, and how to make best friends with crows. Joining me for our weekly roundup is our very own lead producer, John Otariani, and audio producer, Julia Fiaioni. It's Friday, April 13th. I'm Claudia Meza, and this is what Portland's talking about. Julia, John, welcome to your show. Thank you again <laughs> for being thank here. Thank you. Thank you. We're usually here, but thank you for having us on the microphone. Yeah. Julia, you're usually not on the microphone, so it's exciting to have you. I don't think you've ever done a Friday Roundup. This is my first one. So, you know, you guys know the drill. Usually I start off with uh, just a revealing question, but uh, this is actually something that I was curious about because I know that most of us are transplants, but... Wondering what your first memorable meal was in Portland. I, I can totally answer that. The first meal that I really remember when I moved to Portland was I went to get brunch at Sweetie D. Do you guys know this place? It, yes, it's on yes, Albina yes. and it's just this cute, cute, cute little breakfast place. And everything that they do is just so bespoke. It's like the the bread is incredible. And like, and like they found the most beautiful potatoes that you've ever seen. And like all of the coffee comes in these like handmade ceramic mugs. And I remember getting breakfast there. I, I lived in Detroit before this, which is like the land of like very cheap, like mass processed brunt, like breakfast. You know, like Cisco. Like, like, yeah, just, just like, like a Cisco. Like it's like, it's like <laughs> bacon and eggs and it costs $4 and it's just, you know. Just sort of. I'm never gonna knock that though. That's it, it's awesome. awesome. But then, but then I got to Sweetie <laughs> D, and like everything was so gorgeous, and that was the first mm -hmm. time that I was like, "Wow, Portland is really doing food different than where I came from." I haven't been there for a bit, but um, I remember my favorite thing there was the the trout, yeah, the, uh, potatoes. Mm -hmm. What about you, Julia? So this one's kind of funny now, thinking about it, having tried so many incredible restaurants here since then. But one of the first things I did when I moved to Portland was actually go to a concert at uh, Edgefield. So mm -hmm. one of the McMenamin's locations. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I remember after the show, I went over to the hotel and grabbed a seat. I basically had to elbow my, my way in to grab a seat at the bar. And I ordered some tater tots. Yeah. It seemed like that was the thing. And I still really enjoy them to this day. But I remember sitting there thinking, how is this possible? I'm at a concert venue. Things are relatively affordable from the things I've seen before in Toronto and LA. And I actually really enjoyed the food. So it became this kind of solidifying moment to look out for like, I don't know, tasty surprises in places I wouldn't expect. I love, I love that tasty surprise. That's that's Julia's new, new podcast, um, Tasty Fabulous. Surprises. Um, but annoyingly, it's not going to be about food. 
No. She'll just <laughs> she'll figure it out. She'll just figure out what to throw in there. <laughs> but yeah, it feels very Portland now, but um, I'm not a regular McMenamin's guest. I don't have a passport or anything. <laughs> John has a passport. I sure do. He's just waiting. He's waiting for his friend just to come visit. Stamping him off one at a time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, for me, I mean, I moved around like uh, early aughts, you know, um, and it was this is going to I'm going to sound so dated, but it was screen door and screen door is sure. still there and screen door is still hitting hard. But mm-hmm. back in like 2006, 2007, it was brand new. Um, and I lived in that neighborhood, like a few blocks from it. But I remember, I mean, if, I don't know if you, if you haven't got a screen door, it's Louisiana style Southern food. It mm-hmm. is known for its chicken and waffles and very, you know, and like praline bacon, just very decadent stuff, you know, but because it's Portland, they also have this organics section. That's what it's called. And it's some of the best vegetables I've ever had. And I'm a meat eater, but every time I go there, I get the organics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just the three veggies, because they just do the crap out of those veggies. Like, they're so mm-hmm. good. Yeah. I mean, I mean, screen door is kind of a punchline at this point, just because the line to get in is so long, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is why I have not been there in many years. But the last time I was there, the, the food is killer. It is... It's, it's still, still good. good if you've got two hours to wait to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can make reservations. I've I've mm-hmm. you know I've learned the hard way. Um, and what's annoying though is like usually a, a restaurant like you know the luster just fades a little and the lines shorten. But no, the lines have gotten longer at Screen Door. People need to stop writing about them. <laughs> needs to stop. <laughs> Anybody out there listening? Forget everything we just said. Do not go to. <laughs> <laughs> We don't want to see you at screen. <laughs> no, that's awful. Um, we're going to do the thing now where we uh, talk about the news that caught our eye this week. And John, would you like start us off? Yeah, I want to talk about something that I saw uh, about Portland State University downtown. Um, they had announced that they were disarming their campus safety officers back in 2020 This went into effect in 2021. Well, they are reversing course on that now. We got a note from the president of the university that PSU has rearmed their campus safety officers. They have guns again, and it was just announced publicly this week, but it actually went into effect almost two months ago. It went into effect quietly back in February. Um, They aren't Mm. requiring that people... uh, carry guns now is what they're saying, but they're up to the discretion of the officers. Um, so yeah, it's it's a big change. It's something that there's been a long history of controversy about these officers and the guns that they've been carrying. Um, and it's and it's a big shift. A lot of people on campus are not happy about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they they killed someone. Yeah, yeah. This, this mm-hmm. was back in. So they initially were armed back in 2014. What you were referring to, that happened in 2018. It was this guy, Jason Washington. Uh, he was trying to break up a fight outside of a bar just off campus. Um, allegedly, he like there was a, a handgun that fell to the floor and he tried to pick it up and the officers shot him. But he wasn't even involved in the fight. He was just what mm-hmm. people say. Trying to gr- he was grab trying the to gun away. Yeah. Um, so that led to a huge amount of protests. And then the real uh, push to de-arm happened in 2020, after all of the racial justice protests. And that's when the university mm-hmm. agreed to take those guns away. Yeah. I just think about the students. I reflect on my time um, just spending so much time on campus and 
the way that that perspective has changed on like what really defines safety when you're a student on campus. And it's like, it's funny to me how this engagement that led to a decision and all the other situations surrounding this issue um, aren't really involving the students themselves. It's just all of these external factors about the area around. And um, I think I just feel like just generally disappointed that there aren't any resources going into trying to address those surrounding issues directly and just choosing to arm and make these these students uncomfortable instead. Uh, it just doesn't seem like a real solution at this point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and there is an organized group of students and faculty members that has existed throughout this entire process, like from even before they were initially armed, there has been an organized group uh, protesting against these measures. Um, mm -hmm. But what you're saying, Julia, I think is also interesting to think about the surrounding area, because, you know, you know, on one hand, we have been seeing organized protests by students in Portland against guns, um, mm -hmm. but that we've been seeing a record number of homicides in the city, you know, and that's mm -hmm, what they're yeah. referring to is that like there's they say that there's rising dangers. And and interestingly, the university has also said that they feel that they have a lack of support from the Portland police, which is one of the mm. reasons that they're making this. So it is, you know, yeah. like a mm -hmm. lot of Portland, very current Portland issues all sort of crashing into each other on this. It mm -hmm. is. That is like. Yeah, that is the perfect storm of um, everyone's interests clashing together. Um, but I mean, you can't ignore that there has been a rise in homicide. I mean, like there was just a killing of a cab driver, like a senseless, absolutely no reason caught on camera. And there was just like no escalation. And but again, this is not on campus. You know, I agree with what Julia is saying, like that is like the campus for students and students should have a say. But at the same time, if the cops are taking 40 minutes to show up anywhere and someone unstable walks onto the campus, um, I wish that people were trained in like Krog McGraw, what is it, Cog McGraw or whatever, Krog McGraw. Are you, are you talking about uh, the McGruff, the crime dog? Is that what you're going for? <laughs> <laughs> that is not what, what, what I am not bringing it. I wish everybody was trained like... Like McGruff, the dog, he's got some skills. He doesn't use a gun. He uses his sheer wit and a bite. No, I'm talking about... Isn't that like I'm when your body becomes like a weapon? Yes. I have no idea what yeah. this is. Please explain this Didn't... to me. Oh, oh my God. Like I'm the expert. I couldn't even freaking say it. <laughs> it's basically like a, a type of martial arts. I don't know if you guys ever saw Archer, but like the... the, the TV spy show, the uh, cartoon. Oh, yes, yes, that I know. <laughs> yes, was Archer. He was. It would be like that. Uh, okay. You know, we should we should propose this to the city. I think, that, or, or at least the university. I really like yeah, it. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. I mean, but <laughs> all we'll do is we're not going to say anything. We're just going to send a link to Archer, and just have them figure it out. <laughs> should be pretty clear. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, <laughs> bring, bring, bringing us back, though, I don't want to I don't want to lose this <laughs> yeah. point. Uh, OK, no, go you on. Know, thinking about violence and like how that violence happens on campus. There was in the article that I read, there was a quote from the university that said, uh, and I'm quoting, the number of incidents involving people with guns on campus has increased by more than 180 uh, percent. Incidents in 2023 are on pace with 2022. Um mm -hmm. 180% increase. I mean, there isn't numbers there, so we don't really know what that increase means, you know. Yeah. But what, they are, what, the, what the university is asserting is that there is 
that they are seeing more incidents spilling over onto campus um, in concert with some of the incidents that have been happening around the city. Like there's a danger that they're responding to is basically what yeah. they're saying. I mean, the thing that just really sticks out for me, though, is that there were two months when these officers were carrying guns around campus and nobody knew And nobody about knew. It. And like... Wait, not even the people on campus I, knew? I, I mean, that's... From what I can tell, it was just announced publicly this week, but it went into effect on February 14th, which was Valentine's Day. Uh, oh, that is so, nice. You know, that's regardless sweet. of how you feel about weapons, I feel like... If you're attending a university, you have a right to know if people mm -hmm. around you are carrying weapons. So that's a sticky point for me, at least. Yeah. Uh, it's Krav Maga, by the way. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Krav Maga. <laughs> okay. That's all. All right. Let's take a quick break here. When we come back, more headlines of the week. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I want to go next with my uh, story because it it mirrors yours mm -hmm. in uh, the sense of like now it's 2023. All the things that people wanted to do in 2020 to um, look like they were on the right side of history is now kind of crumbling. Um, and as you both know, my favorite kind of gossip uh, or drama is of the local political kind. And this past Wednesday during a Portland City Council hearing, uh, there was a bit of a kerfuffle. Uh, people were brought in to testify, and lucky for us, Sophia Peel, um, a.k.a. our girl, uh, from Willamette mm -hmm. Week, was there to take notes. So, now the reason the story intrigues me um, is because it highlights, as ugh, which I love hearing about, which is awful because I hate it, but I just love hearing about it because then I get to point at it and go, see? Um, but it highlights the incompetence of City Hall oversight with, like, large sums of money and the political theater that, like, these like toothless DEI initiatives that were put into place, like have turned into. So mm -hmm. um, Commissioner Mingus Maps proposed cutting $5.8 million of uh, funding for this racial justice advocacy group uh, called Reimagine Oregon. So the money was coming from like this cannabis tax fund from the city. So Commissioner Maps stated that Reimagine Oregon had failed for four years to get tax dollars out the door, which is interesting because like they, it was like 2020. That's when they. Stopped. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I had some questions about the math, but go on. The math, the math ain't <laughs> mathing for me. But so there's that. Um, and Commissioner Ren Renee Gonzalez and Dan Ryan backed him up. Mm. So that's three people. Best part. Um, Mayor Ted Wheeler was like, didn't know about this. Didn't know this was happening. <laughs> Uh, so they seem to have done a backdoor, like, this is what we're going to bring up today. What was Reimagine Oregon supposed to do? 
Oh, I'll get there in a sec. So Ted Wheeler's just like, well, I'm sorry, what's going on here? And Commissioner Carbon Rubio came prepared because she's strongly opposed to the proposal uh, and saying the city like, hey, guys, you we have not shown up to help reimagine Oregon, even get this, this money. And mm. she came with receipts like she. So like this backdoor deal kind of happened. It leaked to Carmen. The mayor had no clue <laughs> what was like going to be proposed. <laughs> and then the reason she knows is because it's it's like a, it's one of the bureaus she oversees is taking over those funds. So basically, mm. the executive director of Imagine Oregon was also there. Just because, yes, like, as you would maybe, if you're about to lose five and a half million dollars. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. exactly. And so he too was like, "Hey, I place the blame on the city office that oversees this funds because we've been trying to get the money. They've not been a partner. Basically, saying like, um, we want this money. <laughs> you know, give us this money. So the money, according to Reimagine, uh, is supposed to go towards supporting small businesses mm -hmm. in the black community. And then C Commissioner Rubio back. She's like, "Hey, my office, Prosper Portland." is actually going to take over the cannabis fund in July. And in our office's equity director, she's going to assist Reimagine, get those dollars out. Um, also, my, my, can I just remind you that um, we didn't even sign the grant officially until December 14th, 2022. Just a <laughs> just a little, little reminder. And like, I could be wrong. <laughs> just which to me, I was just like, that should have just shut down that conversation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. But this is why it didn't. Because like at one point, everyone in power got to be the hero for buying into like a po popular political movement, said they were going to do a bunch of stuff, did the bare minimum or didn't even like get the money out. And just theatrical stuff like land acknowledgments, like that's what happened. Um, mm -hmm. And like hiring like a powerless DEI, you know, um, like officers where they're all quitting because I guess they have no power. Um, but then once the popular movement began to wane, partially because no one fulfilled any of the promises because it was just theater. Now they're just like, they get to be the, the heroes again by being like, we're wasting money. Let's take it back, you know? Um, and John, you asked who Reimagine Oregon is. And they're kind of like a like a Voltron. I, is that too old of a reference? Julia, do you know what Voltron means? I don't know what Voltron means. Yeah, of course you don't know what It's I'm... like a Power Ranger. Okay. Well, like if all the Power Rangers stacked up on top of each other. Like a Transformer, kind of. Oh, my God. Never. I'm sorry. <laughs> Never again bring in an older reference to Julia. Okay, so it's basically like all these Black-led organizations like PELF and, um, you know, uh, the Urban League. And basically a lot of justice, like racial justice organizations were like, hey, there is momentum right now. It's 2020. All mm. these protests are happening. People are listening there is no real plan. What if we put together a tangible plan, like actual numbers, actual, these are the things that are going to happen. So this to me is just showing this larger picture of reimagine basically being all these organizations being like, we gave you plans, we gave you whatever. And here's what the, the like heinous part to me, <laughs> why I'm so upset about this, but they got so much buy-in. Mm -hmm. They, if you Google reimagine Oregon, you'll see this convention of like, Dozens of people, like we're talking about Loma County, we're talking the city. Governor Kate Brown was in this convention. They were all there to reimagine Oregon, mm -hmm. you know? And they all said, yes, we're going to do that. There's still reimagine Oregon sort of statements and pretty much all the county's um, websites, like Washington, mm -hmm. Multnomah, Clackamas, no longer Clackamas. They opted out. But pretty much everyone else is like, 
in there. And we're talking like Metro, state of you know, Oregon State. So this is what basically Commissioner Maps and Gonzalez and, and Ryan were just like, let's get rid of it. Let's get rid of it. But I mean, it's just like, it's like, oh, all this stuff was always set up for failure. Like they don't mm-hmm. want these ideas. They want to look like quote unquote allies when everybody thinks that they should. But then when it comes down to it, nothing ever happens. Yeah. And so hopefully Commissioner uh, Rubio and, um, you know, and reimagine Oregon could like finally get that money freed and do something about it. But they have mm-hmm. just, you know, they have completed some of those things. Like now the fact that there are like equity officers and pretty much every like component of city and state politics is because of reimagine Oregon. This is such an interesting story for me and and one that I feel very comfortable saying like I don't entirely understand <laughs> like like I don't entirely like, I don't quite have my head around like you know some people are saying that this organization didn't like you know manage their finances and get the money out the door but at the same time there's this detail that like the contract wasn't even signed until the end of last year and I feel like it's hard for me to like parse out exactly what happened here and I'm really sort of curious like if there's going to be more reporting to dig into like, well, what what did happen here? Like, you know, why did that money get get caught up? Um, because, you know, I, I think that like once that money's already been allocated, it's not like the city had a vested interest in preventing this from happening. It's not like the city is like, no, we don't want to distribute this money that is this five point eight mm-hmm. million dollars that is already in the bank to these organizations. Um it's the dysfunction. But, it, but, but it's the dysfunction and like bureaucracy and, you know, like that is. But like, gosh, I mean, just think about how many other initiatives the city has proposed over the years that, you know, had money behind them and didn't go anywhere. Um, you know, billions of dollars of money on projects yeah, that exactly. have not been realized. Um, that, that we voted mm-hmm. for. That we're just like, yeah, please do that. And the city's like, we sure will. Yeah. And 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 and, <laughs> and, and I agree. The last thing that the last point that I'll make is it is um, interesting to sort of think about 2020 from the vantage of 2023. And in some ways, I do feel like the conversation has changed, but so much is still exactly the same. And so many of these initiatives that got started with like a big bang are sort of beginning to fizzle out a bit. And um, I I. I I sad to say it's not surprising, but it is kind of disappointing. The thing here that that's really killing me and, and Claudia emphasized this a little bit already, but it's hard for me to understand how three different commissioners who were in support of, of taking this money away knew that that was going to be happening at the meeting. And so did the people who were in support of keeping it. But Ted Wheeler didn't know that any of that was going on. I mean, again, that's what he stated. Is that's that not- the, is that a fact? Is he playing dumb for some reason? I don't know. But like, just not a good look. No matter how good- you look at it, <laughs> so it's like, wait. <laughs> so are you like not aware of what's happening in your council, or are you lying to us for some reason? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. It's, Either it's way, it's not like it took everyone by surprise. Rubio showed up with receipts. You said yeah. like, if someone is able to gather receipts for this meeting, and you're the mayor, and you don't even know what's going on, that's a really bad look. That doesn't comfort anybody involved. Well, you know, the, the thing that I also think is interesting is this isn't entirely cooked, right? Like this was proposed as a budget amendment. Mm-hmm. I guess the amendment was approved, but the city is voting on the budget next week. So conceivably, there still could be some motion here, right? Like it, it's possible that there is still some sort of politicking that's happening and that by this time next week, we could be looking at a totally different situation. Yeah, I feel like 
if any good comes out of this is that people are now paying attention to these large sums of money that are being like held up. And I'm hoping that's what happens. I'm hoping that like mm. Commissioner Maps maybe was just like, yeah, this is wasteful. And like, if nothing's happening, yeah, of course. Um, so hopefully more stuff comes out of like where money is, the money that was, uh, you know, uh, bookmarked for something isn't being used. I just hope more of this stuff comes out. Um, but mm. I don't know. And hopefully this changes with the chart. I always say that whenever there's like an something happens right now with like the current city hall structure, I'm just like, hopefully with the charter. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> just hanging on to hope for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Julie, what's your story? So the headline that caught my eye this week was some reporting by April Ehrlich from OPB. And uh Altogether, it's kind of just like a summary of, of what's going on with crows in the city and being able to describe like the details of why they're in certain parts of the city at certain parts of the year and how humans coexist with them. Um, so for me, as a newer Portlander, when I moved here, I, I, I noticed that there were so many crows. I have this distinct memory of driving through Washington Park area, uh, seeing crows kind of like laid out on the sides of hills. And that was new for me. And it's nice now to have sort of an answer to why that's the case. Um, and there are two reasons why, uh, specifically, there are so many crows downtown in that Northwest uh, area. And that is because, first of all, that's where they seek safety and shelter during the winter months. So you'll hear a lot of conversation about crows during uh, that November through April time period. Um, people wondering why there are such uh, massive flocks kind of huddled around buildings and flying around. Um, and that is because that is where they seek that that safety and shelter in the in the shadows of those taller buildings. And because that is a thing in Portland, uh, and this is some people may know th about this already. Uh, they hired these abatement falconers uh, in this story specifically. Uh, it's someone by the name Matteo Brunozzi who goes and, and takes these trained hawks to fly through these areas with massive flocks to kind of disperse uh, the so crows crazy. that are there. So crazy. And this yeah. this all came about because the, the businesses downtown were starting to get sick of uh, just all the bird poop around and yeah, the disturbance yeah. of crows, which I think is, is kind of hilarious. Um, so they have this issue where the crows come downtown to seek safety and they've found a temporary solution, at least during the winter months. And the thing that fascinates me the most about this story is just uh, speaking directly to the crows' experience. And the reason why the crows start to show up less and less in that November through April time period is because they learn uh, that the area is not safe over time. And they actually talk to each other. So when you hear those crow noises um, when flocks are together, they're actually kind of like gossiping to each other telling each other where to find food and where the best territory is. So they they learn over time, they say, hey, talking to their buddies, their, their, their kids and whatnot, like, don't go back to that area. It's not safe. And the word gets passed along. <laughs> they got really cool falconers. They got <laughs> falcons with little, with really cool looking hats yeah. coming at us. So I wouldn't go there. Just nose diving. <laughs> um, so uh, by the time April hits, they're, they're seemingly all disappeared. Um, and this all got me thinking about um, like whether or not they're an invasive species and why there are so many of them. And throughout the story, it explains that they're actually a native species. And they've, over the course of their lifetime on the West Coast, um, have learned to just live really well with human beings. It's a very 
it's a symbiotic relationship. It's and where all the food is because we're yeah, so really, nasty yeah, yeah. and just dropping <laughs> stuff everywhere. Yeah. They really benefit from the environment that we create so much so that they start to mimic the same kind of relationship that humans have with dogs, where if you go to the same yeah, spot every uh-huh. day to feed some crows, they'll actually be there waiting for you um, to receive the food. And if you build uh, a deep enough relationship, they'll bring you presents like buttons yeah, and yeah, shiny, yeah. shiny items. And one of the most fascinating examples of that that I heard of was a story that was written uh, out of Seattle about 10 years ago where uh, this family had built such an incredible relationship with these crows in the area. It actually developed into a lawsuit between neighbors because of how disruptive it was. But one of the sweeter <laughs> anecdotes in the story is that um, this this lady who was living in this house was out taking pictures of the crows and she didn't notice that she had dropped her camera lens in an alleyway. Um, and she had gotten home and was like, man, it's gone, whatever. And a few days later, that same camera lens ended up in the birdbath in her backyard. Ah. So the crows brought the camera lens back to her, which who knows how, um, if they even knew that was what was happening. But it turns out they can recognize human faces and remember them and actually talk about you to their young. <laughs> so oh I wouldn't put it past them. Oh my God. <laughs> but how does that make you guys feel? Like, I think that could that could freak some people out knowing that crows are watching you and talking about you. Yeah, and and I read, I mean, that Seattle story kind of went viral when it, mm-hmm. when it was published. And yeah. ever since that story, people have been trying to make crow friends. Like our guy, <laughs> Brian Vance, is actively trying to create a best friendship with a crow. Like, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just saying not a one particular crow, but just like, oh, I wish I had a crow friend. But I mean, who could blame him? I wish I had a crow friend. That would mm. be so cool. So here, here's here's something something that happened when I was dumb. When I moved into the house that I live in now, I would like often come out and there would be like peanut shells on my front steps. And, and my first thought was that the male person was like eating peanuts. It was like dropping them. I'm like, well, that's pretty rude that they're just like eating peanuts on their route and dropping them on my steps. And then like a month later, I realized that a neighbor like halfway down the block was feeding crows and they would come and like perch on my roof and then drop the peanut shells. On the nuts. And, and then it became so much sweeter. Then I was much more happy every time I'd come out and see the peanut shells that the crows were eating on my roof. You're just like, oh, the bros were here. They were hanging yeah. out. They're just eating nuts and chatting <laughs> up buddies. about how, <laughs> you know, about whatever it is that I was doing that day. It's so funny too, Claudia. You had mentioned Brian as an example of someone who's interested in making crow friends, and I'm reminded of the fact that he lives in the Montevilla area. Mm-hmm. And it in the story, they're kind of alluding to this divide between people downtown really not wanting to make friends with crows and people on the east side wanting to, just because mm-hmm. of the way that they're. Um, the crow's patterns are and where they live at certain times of the year. There's about 15,000 crows downtown at its peak. Dang, so that's, that's a lot. <laughs> it doesn't create for a very kind environment to build a relationship downtown. So when the, the birds fly basically out to the suburbs during the spring to make families and hang out, uh, go back to their original territories, um, it's a much kinder opportunity to extend a hand like Brian is doing versus people yeah. downtown are like, great, the crows yeah, are yeah. gone. <laughs> Well, well, for those who don't know who Brian is, we're, we keep ringing up. It's Brian Vance. He's the director of newsletters for CityCast. And he's also a frequent guest. I feel like Brian isn't wrestling with the one detail that really jumped out at me in this story where uh, April wrote that part of the initiative with the Falconers was, quote, to cut back on the need to pressure wash the sidewalks. 
<laughs> I'm like, yeah. got it. Yeah, that is kind of gross. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of gross. It's really gross and loud, honestly. Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing that was so interesting to me in this is I knew about the crows downtown, but I never really wrapped my head around why they end up, you know, I live in St. John's out in my neighborhood at other times of the mm -hmm. year, you know, mm -hmm. that they sort mm -hmm. of spread out in the spring and fall, but then they concentrate downtown because the buildings block the wind in the winter. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, yeah, oh, exactly. that's so cool. I'd never considered that before. Yeah. The last detail I'll add, this is inspiring you to go and create friendships with crows, um, is to not feed them a lot when you go out to feed them because it has negative effects on their health and well-being. And if you're going to commit to building a crow friendship, to do it every day at the same time. So it's a big deal if you're going to go out and do that unless you want to put the lives of these crows at risk. Oh. So you have to be uh, mindful and intentional about that decision. Um, that's advice from people who actually study the health of crows. So, so does that mean they're going to like come and try and hang out the next day at the same time and you won't be there? If you do it consistently enough, that's how you'll let them oh. down if you don't show up. So know what you're getting into. I don't need to into. disappoint anyone else in my life. Like, I, that's <laughs> too much pressure. <laughs> it's awful. They'll um, go and talk about you, too. They'll go and uh, tell everyone gossip, else to not yeah. come back. We'll talk about you behind your back. That unreliable bee. <laughs> I was here for nuts, and I got nothing. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I mean, I actually, Julie, you should start a new podcast uh, just about how to make crow friendships. <laughs> Let's get the crows their own podcast. They can just. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. yeah obviously, they got a lot to say. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Cool. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, you guys, for uh, joining your show today and uh, hanging out with me. It's always a pleasure to get to like experience us on the mic together. So thank you so much. Mm, thanks, Claudia. Thanks, Julie. Thank you. That's all for today here on CityCast Portland. Our lead producer is John Otariani. Our audio producer is Julia Fioni. Our newsletter editor is Rachel Monahan, And our host is me, Claudia Meza. Original music by Jenny Conley and Steven Drizos. Additional music by Epidemic Sound. We'll be back Monday morning with more from around the city. Until then, see you at Slims. <laughs>